you'll join me in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, as we, over the next few weeks, we'll be finishing Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches. We will look this morning at verses 10 through 12. The title of our sermon is The Real Enemy. And our key words for our worshipers and training are devil, flesh, and evil. The Athenian historian and political philosopher by the name of Thucydides wrote a work called The Peloponnesian War. And he wrote in there about um, the Spartan king whose name was Archidamus. Now, Thucydides said he was at once a wise and moderate man. That's how he described him. In Archidamus's treatise, prior to the commencement of war of his people, he reasoned with them for the wise, methodical preparation of their nation, not wanting to be hasty in their action, holding out hope that they could still Um, resolve their conflict in a diplomatic manner. He wasn't a pacifist. He was not opposed to the possibility of going to war with Athens. However, he knew the looming reality of a crippling experience and all the devastation that comes when unprepared. And he said this, quote, we must not be hurried into deciding in a day's brief space a question which concerns many lives and fortunes and many cities and in which honor is deeply involved, but we must decide calmly. But as you know from your own life experience, methodical wisdom and foresight are not always popular. The words of Archidamus went unheeded by the Spartans in favor of hasty action and and letting things simply fall out as they may without any thought, without much preparation. The Spartans thought Archidamus was an old and out-of-touch man. And in fact, in the end, the Spartans did defeat the Athenians. But it came with great cost. The long-term fears of the king were eventually realized. Having won or sought to win at all costs, the Spartans turned on their allies. They were eventually trampled by everyone they once called friends. However, before the war began, Archidamus counseled the Spartans. He said this, In practice... We always base our preparations against an enemy on the assumption that his plans are good. Indeed, it is right to rest our hopes not on a belief in his blunders, but on the soundness of our provisions. Nor ought we to believe that there is much difference between man and man, but to think that the superiority lies with him who is reared in the severest school." Now, many armies throughout history have entered into battle unaware of the strength and the preparedness and the capabilities of their enemy. And the hope is always that the enemy will falter, that the enemy will make a mistake, that the enemy will be weaker. But wisdom says a good tactician, a good war planner always assumes that his enemy has a good plan. And that he will execute his plan and he won't mess it up. And so instead of hoping for the enemy's weaknesses, we plan on their strengths. 
and only plan to ensure that our provisions are better than theirs. And I love the last line of his quote, Nor ought we to believe there is much difference between man and man, but to think that the superiority lies with him who is reared in the severest school. In other words, he who trains harder, he who plans for the most dangerous, most difficult scenario is the one who is most ready to fight and most ready to win. Now, many of you have never been on a battlefield in war, but you likely still know something about this in your own experience. If you've ever been on a sports team, unless your team is really bad, there's usually some other team out there that you get matched up with at some point where you just think you're going to walk into the game and trample them because they're so bad and their record's so awful and they've never had a good team anyway. So, We don't really put much into our preparations. We sort of go into it uh, lackluster, maybe have a Big Mac before we play the game because it doesn't really matter. But then the underdog wins because the assumed winners didn't prepare themselves. They were planning on the weakness of their opponent instead of preparing themselves to win at all costs or Maybe for you, you're in the business world and you've thought about something and you, you have worked on something for so long and you need to give a presentation on it and instead of preparing yourself, you just are going to walk in and wing it and then you get there and the boss is there and they have a bunch of questions you never thought of because you were just going to do what you thought you knew. And this sort of thing happens to us. We get kind of full of ourselves and think that we're ready when we're not. Now, as Christians, all these principles of war are often at play in our spiritual lives. So often our our tendency is to underestimate the preparedness and strength of our spiritual enemy, counting on his blunders so that we can just skate by. Instead of preparing ourselves in the severest school and and bolstering the soundness of our own provisions. But we forget, we forget that our enemy is one that is described as more crafty than any other beast of the field. And as one who disguises himself as an angel of light. Our enemy, dare I say, is more prepared for battle than we are. If you're, if you're banking on his blunders and slacking in your preparedness for battle, you've lost before you've began. And in our text this morning, we are looking at Paul's teaching on spiritual warfare. Now, unfortunately, in our day, this whole concept of spiritual warfare has been twisted to mean something very different from what the Bible teaches. And it's been everything from sort of insane and wacky to things that are just another form of evil themselves disguised as holy. A lot of what's considered spiritual warfare today is actually superstition invented by men who are usually able to achieve some kind of financial gain by promoting All sorts of things, things like selling prayer cloths or supposedly anointed water or oils or other kinds of relics that they tell you you must have. These items are said to be useful in keeping away evil spirits and protecting a person from the attacks of the devil. I've watched videos of people drinking gasoline 
and eating grass and trees after they were told it would keep the devil away from them. This isn't biblical. This isn't Christianity. This is witchcraft and it's evil. Perhaps you've heard or, or have even said something like, the devil made me do it. And with that sort of hyper-realized idea of the supernatural, a person assumes that the devil and his minions have sort of taken over. And so they're able to shift responsibility from actions away from themselves and onto those forces that supposedly can't be controlled. Every time something bad happens, you'll hear people talk about how the devil is at work and how the people of God need to do certain things in order to keep them away. Now, there are others who have completely eliminated the supernatural from their worldview altogether. And so any talk of the devil and his operation in the world is akin to talking about Mickey Mouse or Superman. And the idea, I'm sorry to let you know they're not real, the idea of spiritual warfare is nothing more than an interesting intellectual theoretical discussion for some people. And this is motivated by the prevailing materialistic, mechanistic thinking of our age. Sometimes while we give intellectual assent to the idea that the supernatural world exists, we live and function as though only that which has physical cause is real and active. And sadly, many believers are so influenced by this kind of thinking, they are living in unconscious disbelief of Satan and evil forces and the need for spiritual warfare. In C.S. Lewis's famous work, The Screwtape Letters, uh, uh, there's a demon by the name of Screwtape, and he's writing letters to his nephew, who is training up to be a really active and faithful demon. And he writes this, There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. It's like what Martin Luther once said about Christians. We're often like a drunk man trying to get on his horse. First we fall off on one side only to get ourselves up and fall off on the other. There are two opposite extremes when it comes to spiritual warfare. But hopefully for us, our passage this morning is, and the, the next couple of weeks ahead is going to be helpful in clarifying our thinking on this. Paul doesn't commend looking for a demon under every rock and behind every wall. Nor does he give any sort of hint whatsoever that the supernatural world is non-existent or unimportant. Instead, we see a balanced understanding of how we're to think about these things for our spiritual good and how we are to respond by being reared in and continually going back to the severest school. Can we depend on the soundness of our provisions? Are we making those provisions? Or are we simply hoping that the devil isn't as bad as we know he is according to the Scriptures? Are we hoping that he might mess up along the way and we won't have anything to worry about in this long run? We're going to look at that 
beginning this morning in verses 10 through 12. So let's read together Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now I want to begin this morning in our first point looking at who the real enemy is and who we're dealing with in spiritual warfare. And then I want to come back and see what Paul says we need to do about it. So we're actually going to begin in verse 12 and come back and look at verses 10 and 11. So our first point this morning is that the real enemy in the Christian life is not made of flesh and blood. We see that in verse 12. Now one of the reasons Christians are often misguided concerning spiritual warfare is because of a misunderstanding of the supernatural world on the whole. There is a spiritual world that exists wherein things are constantly going on, even now as we sit here in this room together. It's not like some science fiction, matrix-like parallel universe that exists, but it is a part of God's created order. When we recite together the Nicene Creed, we're actually acknowledging this reality. The Creed says we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And that invisible is the supernatural world. Now, before we get to the specifics of the enemy, it's helpful for us to consider all that occupies the spiritual realm. Now, we are, of course, familiar with God. Um, As a triune God, we're familiar with the devil. But what else is going on in the spiritual world? At a minimum, the Bible identifies various kinds of angels and demons and a divine heavenly council. All of these are created beings. All of these are members Uh, Each of them of the spiritual world, they each possess character. Each of them are attributed in the Bible with some kind of personhood. The Bible indicates that there is a vast number of angels that are everywhere. They are not gods, so they are not all-powerful. They are not uh, omnipresent. They can only be in one place and one time, but they are all over the place. The Bible often refers to angelic hosts, which, which identifies a, a vast quantity. We also read of myriads upon myriads of angels that gather to worship God. So the Bible also suggests that angels exist within a certain ranking system. They have various tasks that they're assigned to perform. You might recall that, that cherubim from The book of Genesis are stationed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden with flaming swords in hand. Uh, Seraphim, they're part of the angelic uh, choir that exalts God in the splendor of His holiness. And they're constantly worshiping God in the throne room. You know of Michael, the archangel. And we see in the, uh, the book of Daniel... It gives us this amazing perspective for us. It says Michael is out to battle, and he is sent to, uh, to a response to a prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. 
Gabriel, the angel, he's a messenger. And he, gave, he was given the wonderful task of telling of the coming of Jesus. So on the whole, angels in the Bible are depicted either as messengers, as guardians, or as warriors. And all of them are doing what God has given them to do. They all have specific assigned tasks. However, there are other angelic hosts who have determined in their rebellion to not minister to the saints, but rather they have sought to destroy the saints. They are fallen angels, otherwise known as demons. Now, unlike the elect angels, which is what Paul calls them in 1 Timothy 5, demons work to destroy the purposes of God, to destroy the people of God. Now, like the elect angels, demons are not all-powerful, they are not omnipresent, but their purpose is essentially the opposite of the elect angels. They don't want to assist, they don't want to encourage, they don't want to help God, they only want to thwart Him. And while in their rebellion they revel in sin and delight in every opportunity they have to tempt the people of God, and to incite rebellion against God, ultimately they cannot help themselves but serve the sovereign, overarching plan of God that brings all things together to serve His purposes. And so God is God over the elect angels. He is God over the demons. He is in control, and they all serve His purposes. Now, chief among the evil spirits is the devil to whom the demons answer and to whose bidding they do. We see the devil in numerous parts of scriptures. He's given several different names. And what we learn is that he's very crafty. He's very skilled in his offerings of temptation, in his twisting of the truth of God. And to be clear, the devil is a far greater theologian than you and I will ever be. And we have to keep that in mind. Now, you may be in your 20s or 30s or 40s or older uh, and have studied the Bible for a number of those years. But that doesn't compare to the several thousand years that the devil has been learning about God, learning about how God works, learning what God does among his people, having an understanding of how all of that plays out and where it's all headed When we talk about being prepared to face the devil, be reminded we're facing someone who knows the Bible better than you. Satan is very well versed in all the ways of his enemy, who is God, and he even knows in the end he's going to be defeated. There's no question about that in what he's doing, but... Until then, wants to do as much damage as he can. And, and yet, just like all the other demons or devils, we know that none of what he does is outside the plan of God. So with all that in mind, we look at Paul's words and realize the challenges and trials and temptations that we face in this world. The opposition that we encounter as believers is not merely with people, or social structures, or institutions, but rather, it's the authors of all the evils. It's the devil. It's the host of demons who themselves are not weak, but rule over worldly people 
and, and govern all of the wickedness and stir them up against the church of God. And when we forget this, we set our sights on all of the wrong solutions and we spend our time, we spend our efforts in all the wrong pursuits. Listen, the, the world ultimately does not get better if we have the right politicians in office or if we keep Muslims from building mosques or if we ban guns or if we hang the Ten Commandments on the walls in public schools and courthouses. None of these supposed solutions deal with the hearts of men, nor do they deal with the real enemy. The real enemy isn't the people in government or false religions or guns or educational institutions. The real problem is the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil that are behind everything we often only see as political or social. There may be different ideas in this, I'm certain there are different ideas about what's wrong with our society and how to fix it and what's bad and what's good, how America needs to change, how it should stay the same. Regardless of our opinions, what I don't think we will disagree on is that we don't have some big issues to tackle right now, as has always been and always will be the case. As a nation... The response to social problems has turned into having congressional hearings, to filing lawsuits, to writing new laws, to protesting and holding public forums, to writing op-ed pieces in the big newspapers. And in the end, what's really going on is ignored completely. I don't expect those who do not know Christ to respond rightly. In fact, I expect that they will do exactly what they are doing, all these things. That the answer is going to be an institution, it's going to be government, it's going to be policy, all of these things. It's never going to come, though, by the means that they're seeking to employ because they're doing battle in all the wrong places. What's disappointing is to see Christians responding in the same way as the world. To see the church forget that the very fact is that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood and institutions but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the spiritual places. Money, politics, research, development, new policies, restructured institutions, none of this can bring about peaceful resolution to all that has fallen because the world has fallen. In fact, it is Satan's great delight that we see spiritual realities as political or social problems to be handled because while we might try to develop a thousand solutions, as long as we're dealing in the earthly realm and ignoring what's going on supernaturally, we're never actually dealing with reality at all. And before you can fight an enemy... You have to know who they are in the first place. And Paul tells us who the enemy is. But let's take this out of the big picture. Let's just deal with ourselves individually for a moment. All of us know that we have days in our lives that we look at and we have nothing other to say than there is a lot of evil. Today was an evil day. And you may have had those days. 
And in those days, we sometimes get the sense that there is some force, there's some power, there's some shadow of evil that is taunting us and working against us at every turn, undermining all of our efforts, putting before us all kinds of temptations, making us feel dirty and making us feel guilty, egging us on. You have a sense of someone or something being out to get you. You can't believe everything seems to be coming together and making things as bad as they possibly can be for you. So what do you do? Well, there's several ways we try to respond to these things. Some might say, well, I just shrug it off and move on. It's all coincidence and thinking about it isn't going to change anything. I just need to move on. Okay, maybe, but maybe not. Another way people try to approach it is to grow anxious and paranoid and start to say things like, my life is going so badly right now because everything is turned against me. These people are out to get me. It's the Republicans. It's the Democrats. It's the institutions. It's the police. It's the school. It's my job. It's my boss. It's, God bless them, my children. So the problem is all about other people and structures and institutions. Another response might be to say, well, the reason the way things are the way they are is because I'm a bad person. The Lord is repaying me for all my sins, so I must be failing somehow. I should have anticipated this. I knew this was coming. And then you have a sort of mindset that God works on the basis of karma, repaying evil for evil and good for good. But here's the deal. None of these responses are right. Not a single one of them. Now, is there something out to get you? Yes. Let's be very clear about that. Yes. Peter writes, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's not kind of wishy-washy language, is it? There's no doubt about it that you have a real enemy and that enemy is seeking to end you, to bring spiritual shipwreck to your life, to destroy the very foundation upon which you stand. But how do we respond? That's the question. If, if this is really something going on supernaturally, then how do we respond? And Paul tells us, he gets us started in this conversation, and we'll, we'll continue on in the weeks ahead, but he begins by telling us in our final point this morning that Christians must be prepared for spiritual warfare by putting on the whole armor of God. And he tells us that in verses 10 and 11. Now, shrugging it off is not going to accomplish anything. Getting anxious and paranoid solves nothing at all. It only makes it worse. Thinking life is like uh, Hinduism and believing in karmas is the way to go. Certainly isn't helpful in the least bit. No, Paul points us to the only mindset, the only way of rightly thinking about how we encounter the real enemy. You see, if you just blame everything on your own failures or other people, you're completely missing it. You'll hate yourself, you'll hate the world, but you'll never scratch the real itch. The most spiritually healthy thing you can do is avoid unnecessary guilt, avoid bitterness, and say, there's more going on here and there's a right way to handle it. It's not my flesh and blood. It's not just their flesh and blood. And so Paul comes in and says, there's nothing more practical here than to realize you're not in a pickup game of Sandlot baseball. You're not in a friendly match with your best buds. You're in a war. 
And in war, you need armor. You need to be protected. And this war is spiritual. So you need the full armor of God because your enemy isn't a flesh and blood. It's not the flesh and blood that you want to blame everything on. So does this mean we walk around saying, well, everything's bad because the devil did it? Everything is this way because the devil is trying to keep me from what I want, from what I need. No, that's not the point. And truth be told, because the devil's not omnipresent, you and I aren't that important to him. There's bigger fish to fry in the devil's pond. However, there are demons, there are minions that certainly are at work. Now remember, nothing is outside of God's overall purposes. So there are reasons beyond our understanding as to why God prevents certain things from happening and causes other things to happen. We don't need to be on a demon hunt trying to find the devil and his minions in every bush and every bad experience. But we need to know that our role, our place in this cosmic battle as the children of God is to put on the full armor of God so that no matter what our challenges are that we face, We can approach them and deal with them appropriately. We can do so knowing that victory will be accomplished. We don't need to worry ourselves with figuring out, now is this a trial from the Lord? Is this an attack from the devil and his minions? Because the answer might be yes, both of those. Look at Job's life. It was both of those. The answer is going to be the same no matter what. It's going to be what Paul says right here in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And we're going to spend several weeks looking at what that is, what that looks like, what the whole armor of God is, and how it's to be utilized. There are very practical elements to all of this. There are actual things that we can and should and must do if we're going to walk faithfully through these evil days. So you'll have to come back the next few Sundays to hear that. It's a little teaser for you. But I want to think for the remainder of our time about what it means to be strong in the Lord, strengthened by His might. When the Bible refers in any way to our being in the Lord... It is referring specifically to our relationship with God made possible through our union with Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, the Bible describes you as being in Christ. And we've looked at that many times throughout Ephesians. If you are in Christ, it means you are covered by His blood, you are robed in His righteousness, you are members of His household, you are sons and daughters of God, you are in union with Christ. In other words, although you are a sinner, and even though you were once an enemy of God, by grace, God has granted you the gift of faith to believe in the perfect work of Jesus Christ, to live a life that you and I could never live, to die a death that you and I deserved. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I pray the Lord will help you to understand your true condition. The truth is, all of this talk about supernatural and spiritual evil forces, it may be kind of laughable to you, it may be a joke to you, but the reality is, whether you want to believe it or not, that the very cloud of darkness you live under is that of a supernatural one. 
there's nothing more that the evil one desires than for you to not believe he exists. The Bible says you're blinded, you have scales on your eyes, unable to see reality apart from Christ. You need Christ because God's standard for salvation is perfection. Not that you're a good person, not that you try to do the right thing. It's perfection, and you fall short of that standard, as do I. God's standard for sin is death, and ultimately you don't want the death that comes as a result of sin because it's everlasting torment. Look to Christ that you might live and repent of your sin, that you might walk in holiness and the newness of life. And in doing so, you aren't, you aren't just saved from the penalty of sin. You aren't just made new. You're made able to walk in holiness. You're made able to walk in obedience. You're made a friend of God, a child of God. You're made an inheritor of all that God has and gives and provides. And then and only then can you be prepared to fight the real enemy. But if you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, we may fear the exposure of our weaknesses and our battle against sin. But Paul reminds us that the strength of our relationship with God is provided to us by Christ. Here's the bottom line. If you are in Christ... You have access to power that is greater than you and me, bar none. Earlier this year, I was at the beach with my children. My four-year-old daughter wanted to play in the waves, and it doesn't take long before she's knocked down by the waves, mouth full of water, body full of sand, And she runs away from the water. And if you know my four-year-old daughter, you'll be surprised to hear that she was crying uncontrollably. Determined, I am not getting back in that water. So I picked her up. I hugged her close. I brought her back into the water, holding onto her hands as, as she stood and calmed down and gained some courage again and was able to do this on her own. Knowing that she was in my care renewed her willingness, renewed her desire to to get back in the battle against the forces of nature. And in time, she was more enthusiastic than she was when she began. And so just last week on our family vacation, she said, I used to be scared of the waves, but my daddy taught me how to not be afraid. Now, in a similar way, we gain strength for spiritual battle from knowing that even if we've been hit hard, even if we have fallen, we are in the Lord. Because knowledge of our unchanging relationship grants us the will to fight and to re-enter the fray when we've fallen. We understand why Paul tells us to be strong in the Lord. He's there. He's holding you. He won't let you get swept away. And so in God's embrace, we will battle with renewed zeal and strength, and we can do so knowing that we're cared for and protected. And Paul identifies the source of the power for battle by telling us we do this in the strength of his might. Here's the amazing thing about the Lord and how he works for us in spiritual warfare. He not only provides the support we need, but the actual strength that's necessary to see it all through as well. And this isn't some kind of physical energy. It's not like you're drinking a Red Bull or a five-hour energy all of a sudden and you're charged up and ready to, to fight. 
No, Paul's actually being very clear that we don't want to supplement our strength with his strength. It's not like an add-on. It's rather that we look to our new life in Christ knowing that none, zero of the strength that is necessary to wage spiritual war is within us. It is all from the Lord. It all comes from God. And we'll be looking in the weeks to come at where to access that power and how to use it. Brothers and sisters, we are in a war. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The struggle with flesh and blood is far too much for the 21st century mindset. Our real enemy is subtle. Our real enemy is powerful and very well equipped. He's prepared to fight. He hates Christ. And he hates God's children. He hates the church. We sing about it. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Those are chilling realities. They might cause us to despair. And on earth among mortals it is true that Satan has no equal. But in the heavenly realms... He is far, far exceeded by the triune God. Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians that the entire visible and invisible realm of existence owes their existence to Christ. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. Listen, there is no dualism here. There's not some battle of equal enemies fighting one another. Satan is not the counterpart of God because Satan is finite and God is infinite. Our enemy is infinitely inferior. Satan's power is overwhelmed by that of God. And Christ's power is not only greater because he is the creator, but because he has already defeated Satan at the cross. And as a result, Satan and his minions are under the feet and rule and reign of Christ already. Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that our Lord Jesus Christ has led them in a victory parade. It says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He has sealed their doom, even though during this present overlapping of the new age with the old, they still exercise control over those who are not found to be free in Christ. John Stott writes this. He says, they were defeated at the cross, and are now under Christ's feet and ours. So the invisible world in which they attack us and we defend ourselves is the very world in which Christ reigns over them and we reign with him. If you are in Christ, Satan's forces cannot subdue us. When we avail ourselves of Christ, there is always, always victory. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. A mere word from Christ is all that's needed and is all that will be given.
so we can be strong in him and the strength of his might. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that as we, as we consider what we are up against, as we consider that we have a real enemy who is seeking to devour us, as there are a multitude of enemies that are functioning in this world to trip us up, to put constant temptation before us, to see us twist the truth of your word, to think it other than what it is. As all these things are going on, Father, we look to Christ. Christ who has brought it all to be. Christ who has made it all for the purposes that you have determined to be fulfilled. And so as we want to be prepared for battle, we want to put on the full armor of God. We want to be reared in the severest school so that we are always prepared for the fight. We know that the strength and the power in order to wage the battle comes not from within ourselves. It comes not from what we do or what we are, but it comes from Christ. Christ who has made us. Christ who has lived and died for us. Christ who has redeemed us. Christ who gives us all that we need in righteousness, in truth, that we may stand faithfully and victoriously. Father, help us to not fear the things of this world. Help us to remember when we feel low, when we feel down, when we feel as though we are in despair and anxious about the affairs of the world, of our nation, of our community, of our families, of our jobs. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is a real entity in the supernatural world that you have under your complete and total control. And so may we find great rest in you this morning and always. Thank you for the promise of your word that we can look to you, we can trust in you, and we have great hope in you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.